I think that there's a lot of constructive and productive things you can do. I think there's more allies out there than you know. And I think that you need you need to show your vulnerability and and it and it's a powerful thing to tell somebody you're scared and you need help. Welcome to Good on Purpose. This is a podcast for anyone searching for something more meaningful in their life and work. I'm Nilesha Chauvet, Managing Director of Good, a purpose-driven creative agency working with brands and charities to help make the world a better place. In each episode, I'll be speaking to people who've made a conscious and deliberate decision to give something back. People from all walks of life who represent a new generation of leaders changing and shaping the world today. Listen in as I dig deep to get to the very heart of the story they really want to tell, and most importantly, to understand why they're telling it now. Today I'm talking to Jamie Klinger, a writer, activist, and co-founder of Reclaim These Streets. It's a movement born from vigils organized in response to the murder of Sarah Everard in London in March 2021. Sarah's death unleashed an outpouring of grief, but also much fear and concern for the safety of women and girls everywhere when it transpired that Sarah was murdered by Wayne Cousins, who was a serving Metropolitan Police officer. A national debate caught fire. Many women spoke of their experiences of feeling vulnerable, suffering harassment and abuse from men on the streets and on public transport. Today, Reclaim These Streets says it aims to use legislation, education and community action to ensure that no woman is left unsafe. Because it's wrong, they say, that the response to violence against women requires women to behave differently. This episode covers sensitive topics such as rape and violence against women and girls. Jamie Klinger, a very warm welcome to Good On Purpose. I'd like to begin by asking you where you think we are right now as a society in the UK on the issue of women's safety. I think we're in a really problematic place. I think there was a lot of uproar in March and I uh, I don't think much has changed. Last night, a young nurse's body was found and There's a lot of uproar. There's a lot of vigils. There's a lot of politicians that talk when things happen. But in terms of policy changes, in terms of statutory reviews, in terms of anything actually happening, our lives are not valued that much. They're not putting enough time or effort or policing efforts or prevention efforts into keeping us alive and keeping us safe. It's frankly not good enough. So let's talk about Prime Minister Boris Johnson in the UK. I know that you're speaking to us from the States at the moment and uh, you do often fly back and forth between the markets and it'll be interesting to explore how they're different. But in the UK, certainly Boris Johnson has said in an interview with broadcasters, which he gave following the debate over how Wayne Cousins, for example, was able to become and remain a metropolitan police officer, that there is a problem. There's a problem with the way that we handle rape, domestic violence, sexual violence, and the way we handle the complaints of women and girls. And also, according to Boris, the problem is that we have too few prosecutions and convictions for these crimes. And it takes too long between when a complaint or a crime is reported and any action being taken. So would you agree with this? And if not, what What, in your view, are the barriers to us achieving safety for girls and women? 
I absolutely agree with what he said on that day at that time. But what he says the next day or the next week or when he cuts funding to the prosecutorial system and when there's there's empty courtrooms. There, I think I was on an interview recently and the person in front of me was being interviewed about the fact that like 70% of courtrooms are empty. You can't say one without fixing the other. You can't say, oh, this is horrible when you have control to fix it and not do anything to actually make it any better. The women's sector has been so radically underfunded for what? 50 years, you know, one of the one of the issues around austerity is is violence and violence begets violence. And without social services and without any preventative measures taken and not any education measures taken, we're, we're not ever at a place where we're looking to the future as a brighter place, as a safer place. There were all kinds of stats said that even if we did everything possible, that we are like 25 years behind the worst possible rate prosecution numbers that there ever were. You know, so they're saying it's like a 1% rate. Jess Phillips has talked about the fact that it's it's basically a non-prosecutable crime at this point. So sexual harassment has become so pervasive in our lives, hasn't it? Do you think the situation is getting worse? And if so, why might that be? I don't know that it's getting worse. I was listening to a TED Talk yesterday because I was pretty bereft about the latest woman being killed and just feeling like all the work and all the effort that we've done is barely a drop in the ocean. But um, actually, in terms of violence and progress, I think we're we're definitely talking about it more and we're bringing it to light more. But I don't know that there's necessarily more harassment. I don't have the numbers on all of that. But when they talk about the fact that 97% of women in the UK say they've been sexually harassed in public, this kind of misconception that that means that all of us have experienced it once, whereas it's more like death by a thousand paper cuts. Some of my guy friends, when I started doing all of this work with Reclaim These Streets, were like, but you barely talk about it. Like, I hang out with you all the time and it's it's not something you talk about all the time. And I'm like, I'd be the most boring person ever if I told you every time a guy yelled at me, if I told you every time my boundaries were crossed, every time a guy in Sainsbury's, every time I was running and somebody tried to grab my arm or talk to me, every time I received unsolicited pictures, you know, it would be my only topic of conversation. And frankly, this year, it's quite up there on the list of my only topics of conversation, given the work I'm doing. But um, we all have these stories. Siren Kale wrote for The Guardian about indecent exposure and how many of us have had men expose themselves to us. And my friends were just, abs- my male friends were absolutely shocked. And my female friends all kind of just shrugged and were like, oh, it's part of growing up. It's part of what happens to us. It, it shouldn't be part of what happens to us. It should not be acceptable that we all have all of these stories and that when we meet new friends and it's late at night and people have been drinking and girls are alone, all of us go into these confessional modes where we basically roll out our sexual assault stories or our sexual harassment stories or or the stories where we were violated. And it's like, this this should not be the status quo. It's interesting, isn't it? Because I think that many of us do have those stories and they are stories that are very difficult to tell. So I was reminded the other day that actually when I was 21 and I was on the London Underground, I, I was groped and I completely had put that out of my mind, but I remembered it and, and it I was just enraged by it. And I remember at the time being so enraged by it and, and feeling so violated by it. And I don't think that the 
necessary precautions and the sort of systems in place to help women talk about these things were around on the London Underground as they are now. You know, now you can, there are posters up, you know, who to call, you know, who to talk to, you know, what the sort of procedure is. But this is, you're right, this is all too common. And do you think, therefore, we are having the right kinds of conversations at the right time? Do you think that women feel safe to talk about these things? Because, as you say, they are so frequent. You kind of almost think, I I don't want to spend all my time talking about this. But actually, we do need to have better, more constructive conversations because it just doesn't seem to be going away. Well, I actually think that's one of the biggest impacts of the work that Reclaim has done this year is we've gotten a lot of these conversations to the dining room tables. So like people are talking about it with their sons and daughters over dinner because it's been so front of mind and because of what happened after Sarah was killed. So I do think that there's more conversations. I think that it's becoming safer to just to talk about it in mixed company and to talk about the internalized decision trees that we do every single day to avoid contact and conflict. You know, oh my God, if I walk this way, I'll avoid that guy that always yells at me that or the homeless guy that yells at me. Or if I walk this way, I won't have to walk by those construction workers. You know, like there's so much that we just do with, without having reflecting on it without thinking about it, because it's just an annoying part of our everyday. But there was something on TikTok about young women and what would they do if men didn't exist. And all these young women were like, I'd walk around with my headphones in at night. And like, how are we not in a society where we deserve to just be left alone to listen to our music and do our own thing? And like, there's such a trend towards mindfulness and meditation and that you should have your feet in the sand or your feet in grass and you should just mindfully meditate in grass. None of us are mindfully meditating in grass in Regent's Park. You're worried about who's going to come up, who's going to say something, who's going to take a picture of you. What's, you know, and imagine if that low level thrum of pervasive fear didn't exist, how much more energy and time we would have to write sonnets, to, you know, to create operas, to, to be more creative and just to be more at ease. And we deserve that. Like our, the young women that are coming up after us deserve that. They deserve to not be constantly worried. And a lot of people, well, in this day and age of social media, come back to me with, oh, more men are attacked, more men are this, more men get in fights, more men have violence, more men, more men, more men. When we're attacked or we're mugged, we're very much less worried about our bags than keeping ourselves from being sexually violated. And that's not okay. A young woman was running in Manchester along the canal and ended up in the canal and and luckily got away from the guy by ending up in a canal. And I was like, oh my God, thank God she wasn't raped. Like what world are we living in that that's a good solution that she ended up in a canal? Like I live on the canal and run every day. So that one definitely hit closer to home. But one of the things you were saying about us not talking about it every day we don't have the capacity for rage at all times. It kills people, you know, like the, if, if our constant level of anger and upset is always turned up to 11, that's just not a way to exist. And doing the work that I've been doing this year, it's so hard because like 133 women have been killed since Sarah. And I only know five of their names. And I just, the capacity for grief, like I've been up since three o'clock this morning, just I went for a late or I watched the sunrise and went for a walk and was just so upset about Petra's family in the Czech Republic, like not having their daughter back and receiving the worst possible news. And as an expat, like I've been in London for 20 years and what that would be like for my family to know that I just 
didn't get home from work. It's just, it's just unfathomable. So let's talk about the media and the role of the media then, because you've worked in the media, I work in the media. So let's talk about how the media is being used to positive effect. Do you think that we are having the right kinds of conversation in the media, or do you think the media is perpetuating some of the problem? I think the media is often a mirror of society and what's happening. And I think this year, the media has done a really good job. But I'm also very aware of the connotations and that Sarah was very much covered because she was an attractive white woman in her 30s that most of England thought could be her. We've done tons of work with Mina Smallman, and we held a vigil for Biba Nicole, who got so little press comparatively. It took quite a bit longer for Sabina Nessa to get the amount of press. We know that women of color get very, very few headlines and covers of newspaper comparatively to white middle-class women if there's a crime. And so there are definitely problematic parts of it. I also know that because I was media trained, that when the firestorm and all of the requests came in about Reclaim These Streets, I was in a good position to stand up and be counted. And Anna Burley, who's one of the other founders who also deals with a lot of the media, the two of us did hundreds of interviews. And so if you make yourself available and you're well-spoken and you know your topics and you're not going to curse on live TV, we've done hundreds and hundreds of interviews to keep it on the front pages, to keep it in. And we've done local radio. We do, I do LBC all the time. But the, like the reason I do LBC all the time is I think those conservative male hosts that I have these conversations with are markets that I wouldn't have reached otherwise. And I have really good conversations because I'm not asking for anything crazy. I'm not asking for curfew for men. I'm not saying women should be armed. I'm All I'm saying is I deserve some respect and I deserve to get home alive and safe. And it's really hard to disagree when you're not saying anything that's outlandish. Like I'm not going on shock radio. I'm not trying to say, let's make this these, these carriages just for women and let's only have women taxi drivers. Because again, I think that isn't realistic and it's not going to solve the problems. But we also, we don't condone that women are the ones that have to protect themselves. We don't condone that we need to all do more self-defense classes or we need to arm ourselves or we need to do this, that, or the other thing. This problem really, really sits at the hands of men and lies with men. It's the anger and the violence that men are exerting. Like the terrifying thing is like when we regrouped after the initial chaos of the vigil being canceled by the police and what the police did at the vigil, we really talked a lot about what we wanted our mission statement to be because like at one point we were getting called every time that there was a rape anywhere in the UK for comment. And, and what is your comment on that? They're all horrific, but our lives couldn't just be saying rape is bad on TV every day. So our focus really was about women in public spaces. And our, our mission statement is we aim to use legislation, community action and education to make it so that women don't have to text me when you get home. And that's something a 10-year-old can understand and that we've all been doing our whole lives, you know? Like, we've always been letting people know that we're safe and we're home and we're accounted for. And we didn't want to go into domestic violence because there's so many organizations that already cover that, not to say that they're not just as important, but it's you're not stepping on toes and and you're taking apart and you're putting parameters around something that you can have wins and you can really focus on something and make progress because it's really hard. I did an interview the weekend after Wayne Cousins was sentenced and that week killed me. You know, like I was with girls from the BBC when we found out about the handcuffs and it just broke me. You know, the 80 miles that she was in the car and still can barely talk about it without crying. 
Because we could, any one of us would have gotten in that car. Any one of us would have been her. And and she had no power. And then you hear the PCC commissioner for Yorkshire saying, Philip Alcott saying that she shouldn't have submitted to the arrest as if she had any choice. And again, the blame is on us. Like, what do we have to do to keep ourselves alive? And it's, yeah, my my rage today and my sadness about the news of them finding Petra's body. Usually, I might think I'm a little bit more upbeat on on interviews, but it it's pretty soul destroying because the the woman from the Sun was like, "Well, if nothing's changed in the last six months, have you wasted the last year of your life?" And it was like, "Oh my God, it's quite a way of putting it." And I don't think I've wasted the last year of my life. I think I think we have gotten the conversation out there. I think we've influenced young women. I think we've influence the government and influence some areas of spend, but it's baby steps. There's there's miles, miles more to go. There might be miles to go, but absolutely you have taken some tremendous steps in helping us all have some really constructive conversations. And you're right, there is a long way to go, but it's it's a big societal problem that is not going to be fixed overnight. So let's just talk a little bit about men then, because you raise men. How can we have a constructive conversation around the issue of women's safety without demonizing men or vilifying the police? Because it strikes me that there is a danger in this narrative that we could incite hatred between the sexes. And that's actually not what we're trying to do here. Absolutely not. And the the fact of it is, if women are safer, we have better consensual sex. We have better relationships. We have more relaxed, more open communication. We have better friendships. We just have better lives. You know, and our male friends and our male partners and our male sons have better lives if we're not going on dates with a backup plan in case they get violent. And, and we do that. And that's that's a horrible way to meet somebody. That's a horrible way to enter any situation. You know, and all of us benefit from a society where women are safer and when our shoulders are back and we can have honest conversations. And the fact of the matter is, we know who the men are that are creeps or that have the possibility. Men know more than we do because they see them unmasked more than we ever will. They've got access to situations and conversations that I'll never be in the room for because they know that I would throw boiling water at people. That is a joke. But (laughs) it is the responsibility. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) Yeah, I can't do my (laughs) phillyisms. But um, there is a responsibility and a duty for the men that love us and take like are in our lives who are 90% of the men we know to call it out and be like, this is not okay. And I actually think that what was considered banter five years ago is not banter now. And I think we have evolved in terms of communication and in terms of what men will tolerate and what boys will tolerate. I think that there is definitely progress in the fact that we can have these conversations and we can analyze situations where we didn't feel easy. I think there is definitely more of a culture in the U.S. where you can quite vociferously call someone out much easier. I think in the U.K., there's the fear of offending, the fear of canceling, the fear of looking like you're not able to take it and you're not one of the one of the team and you're you're being too sensitive where i think we have to move towards a place where 
the entire room is calling it out. Now, when I talk about baby steps, one of the things I'm working on right now is the highway code. And this might sound like a really, really minor example, but I think these little tiny examples make a big difference. So on the highway code test, like when you're getting your driver's license, there's stuff about if an old person is walking across the street in front of you that you shouldn't beep at them or yell at them to hurry up. But there's nothing about sexually harassing people from your cars. And if we were able to get things like that, that you that your license could get suspended or you were, could get a fine or just that it's illegal to do, that that being in your driver's license test and that being in the highway code means that the kids studying for that test see that and are tested on it. And it just establishes that it's not okay and it's not appropriate to yell things out of a moving car at women passing by or people passing by, but very much sexually things at women. And just those little things and getting that, which is a really cheap thing to do, and getting it put in the highway code means that kids have to study that. They have to see it. They know even if they do the behavior, there is a deterrent and there's something in writing that says you should not do that. So like we're working on little things like that, that are little wins, but that start that whole thing of the ostracizing of the behavior. Because if the guy next to you in the car, when you do that, is like, what the hell is wrong with you? Where were you raised? Like, oh my God, I won't get a car with you again. I don't want to, I don't want to hang out with somebody who's that badly mannered, which sounds really proper, but you know what I mean? Like it's, it's the deterrent, the social deterrent from the behaviors. So let's talk about how this whole movement started. So let's start at the very beginning when Reclaim These Streets was founded. Talk to me about what really inspired you personally at a very deep level to become an activist for women's safety. It's kind of a crazy story. I worked at Shortlist and Stylist magazines for 10 years. And when the Charlie Hebdo massacre occurred, we were in an editorial meeting when we heard about it. And we kind of just stumbled out of the building and walked to Trafalgar Square and saw every journalist I'd ever met at Trafalgar Square. And everybody was just in collective shock and was together. And and it was an impromptu thing. But that community of being around other people that were as shaken as I was, was, was profound for me. And the Monday of the week that Sarah's body was found, I had tweeted that my personal WhatsApps were blowing up and that I was devastated for her family and that she deserved to get home safely. And, um, the, the tweet got something like 600,000 uh, page impressions, which never happens. Like, and it, w- it was a pretty innocuous tweet. It wasn't, it, I hadn't said anything groundbreaking in it, but it went nuts. And then on Wednesday night, when her body was found, I was living alone. I hadn't seen my friends. I hadn't hugged any other women. And police were telling women the only way they could, that we could keep ourselves alive was to stay indoors. And if you extrapolate that, does that mean I don't get an Ocado delivery? Does that mean I no longer walk my dog? At what point is my life worth living if I have to stay inside to keep myself alive? And so there was anger, there was upset, there was everything. And so I tweeted on the back of, I threaded to the first tweet that I was going to do a vigil. And because of my events management experience and because of my magazine experience, I had the contacts to publicize a vigil and to put one on safely in COVID times. And within like 15 minutes, a bunch of other journalists were like, oh, there's local women that are already putting one on. You should join forces that had announced one like an hour before. So that night I was contacted 
and put in touch with the women that were local women in Clapham. And we had a meeting and realized that we were both on the same page in terms of we'd both contacted the council and the police and we wanted to do it in the safest way possible. If one of us had been all about anarchy and one of us had been all about contacting council, we would never have joined forces. But so that day, Reclaim These Streets started and I joined. And then by the next morning, because we had already reached out to the cops on the Wednesday, by, and had they had emailed us that they were going to find a policing solution to make it as safe as possible. And then by 2.30 on the Thursday, Scotland Yard got involved and said it would be illegal for us to gather. By Thursday night, we had lawyers and we raised 37,000 pounds to sue the police for our right to protest. We were in high court on Friday and I was one of the claimants. And um, Friday night, as we negotiated the parameters within which we could legally go ahead, Scotland Yard sent a nationwide press release that it would be illegal for it to happen. So we, as Reclaim These Streets, there were um, nine of us at the time. I was joking that we were the Clapham Nine. And we were talking about whether or not we were willing to get arrested. We were each threatened with 10,000 pounds in fines and prosecution under the Serious Crimes Act, which would be custodial, which was terrifying. And we had a very, very long conversation with lots of tears. Some people were worried about their citizenship. Some people were, or their indefinite leave. Some people were worried about their parliamentary pass and their careers. And we really got to the point where we believed, given that we had raised 37 grand in an hour, that we could raise the 90,000 pounds for the nine of us. But given that there were 31 other satellite vigils that were planned to take place, and we didn't have those women in the room, and we didn't have those women making a decision about whether or not they would end up going bankrupt if we couldn't raise the money to help with their fines and whether or not they would end up having custody battles or that they would lose their jobs or there would be bankruptcy involved. And so we, lots of tears, lots of discussions, but we decided collectively that we would rather raise 320,000 pounds as our goal for the fines that we would have had to pay and cancel the vigil. But it was not something that we came to lightly and it was not something that wasn't painful. In the end, we raised 550,000 pounds for organizations with, for violence against women and girls, which we've given to Rosa, which is a grant-making foundation. And, and a movement was kind of born when police manhandled women at the vigil the next day, which was horrific to watch. Like we had to be on camera at home for liability's sake, but I was watching the BBC feed about to go live on the BBC, and I I literally just still can't believe what they did. I, I still can't believe how badly they've blundered this and how they treated us and doing an inquest, which says that they acted appropriately, that we didn't see what we saw and that women weren't treated the way they were treated. It was just obscene. I don't think we're going to be able to silence you, Jamie. <laughs> it's clear <laughs> that you are enraged and really passionate about this. And we need people like you um, in the world to drive changes. And that's why it's such a privilege to speak to you. But let's just go back because it's interesting hearing you talk and knowing your background. It strikes me that you are a woman who really knows how to make ideas fly. You're, you know, you're a digital comms expert. You've run all of these big events. It feels like you've had really good preparation for the, the career that you have now. You've worked in publishing for magazines like Stylist, as you say. You invented National Burger Day. <laughs> did you expect Reclaim These Streets to gain such national attention? Or did you know that anything you'd put your hand to is going to be absolutely massive? No, like literally, it was going to be one and done. Like we, this was Wednesday. 
by Saturday, four news crews would have shown up for the vigil and it would have been over. Not that we wouldn't have been upset about it and not that we would have done some press. Like, but by no means did any of us anticipate this. Really funny, somebody was saying that I was an agitator brought in from America to rabble rouse and to go anti-police. And I was like, I've been in London for 19 years. Like, what was I doing for those 19 (laughs) years waiting for this to happen? And I had gone to two protests in those 19 years, both of which were about Trump. And so, like, I, this was not my life. I was not, I have not been in political circles. I have not done this before. I just couldn't be quiet anymore. And because I run an events business, I, we were in lockdown. I didn't have an events business. So I was able to put all of my time and effort and all of my anger into it. And, and yeah, I'm from Philly and I'm, I, I've got a lot of anger and energy. So if I put my mind to something, I'm, I'm ready to ring every bell and, and use every contact and do everything I can do to, to make it stick and to make people have conversations and to make the conversation continue. But by no means did we anticipate that it would be a movement. We had no intention of raising any money. It was literally just going to be that Saturday. But the activities and the the declarations made by the police made it impossible for us to not take the flag and run with it, really. And we were 10 people when we started, and then we were down to four. And now we're trying to figure out how to diversify the board and to get more people involved and how to use volunteers in the best way. And it's a huge amount of responsibility because we are carrying the flag and we're raising our voices about it, but but I'm not an expert. Um, we stand on the shoulders of women that have worked in the violence against women and girls sector for 30 years who I've not met many of those women. And like reclaim, this is, a, this is a crazy thing that I don't know that we've talked about. We hadn't met. We were supposed to meet the day of the vigil and then we didn't meet until three weeks later. Like we hadn't all met in person. Like it was forged by fire and, and it was crazy. Like- People have no idea what those nine days were like because it was 20 hours days. I think I did 160 interviews that weekend. But again, like you have to be willing oh to do God. all those interviews <laughs> to to make something yeah. that, oh, got it. I can, and I'm so much happier doing live interviews because then I don't have to ever listen to it again. <laughs> I don't have to worry if I flub things because I never see it again. So as an activist then, forged by fire, what would your advice be to those who want to also take to the streets to campaign for causes? Because we are living in an era of increased activism, I would say. You know, people don't hesitate to take to the streets. So how can we do this constructively? So actually, I was I was in Abu Dhabi last week and I was coming back and um, on the plane, I wrote out a whole list of things to do with this new platform that I'm trying to build about like School for Activists. So getting expert communicators, getting expert logo designers, getting expert crisis comms people to kind of do some workshops on this is what you need to distill. This is what you need to think about. These are the permits you need to get. So it's kind of all the school for activism and the places where we had downfalls like crisis comms and conflict resolutions within groups, you know, and and looking at some people that have done this for 20 years and getting their expertise because I've been flying by the seat of my pants for a year and I've learned so much, but it's how do I get this? I did a lecture at Leeds University, which was crazy, but really was quite enjoyable. And all the women that were there, like I got like 40 LinkedIn requests thanking me for coming. And and that feels really good. I've done so many journalism school interviews because those are the people that are going to take this forward. It's not going to be me. It's got to be young women that have the fire and have the passion and are going to take it to the next level. 
Do you think our focus on legislation has distracted us from creating the right safe spaces for women to heal after some of these crimes? Oh, I think we're an open scab a lot of the time. I think like, I think so many of us have been re-traumatized by this year. I know that I wasn't trained in rape crisis counseling and just the thousands of women sending me their stories. And like last week, people tagging me when somebody gets attacked. It's really, really hard because I, I don't know how to I don't know how to give everyone a hug. I don't know how to protect anybody. And I want to protect everybody. And it and the responsibility of having that voice is it weighs heavily. So what do you do then to decompress and give yourself enough space? Because obviously you're encountering this all the time and you're having conversations about this all the time. I get a lot of counseling. Um, I cope in Camden, the Women and Girls Center. I went to them the week after everything and uh, was just like, I'm a mess. I was like, I'm scared to go outside. And and so much of who I am is my bravado and I lost so much of it. God, I'm already crying. And it takes, it takes a lot, but there's a lot of um, CBT for me that really works. Weirdly, there's a Asian supermarket in Camden where I spend a lot of time because it just calms me down because I don't know what anything is and I can just go in there and read things and like take it down a few levels and and not be so freaked out. But um, I know that statistically it's it doesn't happen every day and it's not going to happen every day to me, but my heart breaks. Like today, I've I'm having a hard day, like reading about Petra and and knowing knowing that she was a nurse and she was helping people, not uh, and that she was an expat. Like knowing that her family's away, I think we we identify with certain parts of every story. Julia Jones, the PCOS that was in Kent walking her dog, like uh, that detail just killed me because I just can't imagine my little dog like not knowing what to do, you know and. But, but if we had the capacity for all of this, I would never leave the house and I would just cry all day, every day. So I, I try to fuel it and to, to funnel it into anger and, and social change and, and to doing things like talking to you and getting the word out there and, and making it a compassionate conversation where I'm not just a firebrand screaming about men. I'm, I'm talking about the fear and anger and talking about that it compels me to keep going and compels me to keep having these conversations. Absolutely. And it strikes me that the story of one woman is actually a story for all women. And and that's the power of the movement, isn't it? That we can all come together, whether it's around a vigil, whether it's around an issue, and actually share in the experience. So since so many women have poured their hearts out to you, and, and you've been so open with me today, what advice would you give to girls and women who fear for their safety? I think that there's a lot of constructive and productive things you can do. I think there's more allies out there than you know. And I think that you need you need to show your vulnerability. And, and, it, and it's a powerful thing to tell somebody you're scared and you need help. I think putting out there that you're scared and putting out there that you're having a hard time, I think a lot more people will come to your aid and will walk you to that bus or walk you home or make sure you get in a cab or or check in with you. While all this was happening, I had a ton of friends that were doing welfare checks, but I was on go mode. I was on I was on autopilot and I was like, yeah, I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm fine. And then when I sat down and I actually thought about it, I wasn't fine. And I got some counseling and I and I reached out to those friends and said, actually, I need 
I need to really talk about how scary this is. I need to talk about how scary it is that they, that the police told me I was going to go to jail. Like I, that was terrifying, you know, and, and I need to talk about how scary it is to take the police to court and to be a claimant there. That was scary. Like these are, these are experiences that I never anticipated and I never had any reason to anticipate. And being on the nightly news is scary and, and getting the messages you get when you're on the nightly news is scary. But, but also worth it. And then there's people like Dr. Charlotte Proudman, who's a barrister who we now meet with our dogs. And, and you learn from other people. Sophie Walker does all kinds of stuff. And she did a panel with all kinds of other activists. And then you actually talk to other women who have been doing this for years and you're inspired by them. And you, you learn what their coping mechanisms are because there is a lot of burnout. You know, like reading about and talking about violence against women all day is just not fun. It's really hard. And my dog has been cried into more times than I can tell you. But I also know that it has made a difference. And I know my mom would have been super proud. Oh, I'm sure she would. So through the lens of safety for girls and women, what is your vision of the world in five years time? Oh, I need, I need to get a five-year plan. I've been tripping over my feet of just getting to the next week for this year. And um, we're taking this month and we're going to regroup to look at what what our asks are, because you don't get the wins without the asks. And um, pairing with experts, like shout out Youth K, finding the guys from Empathy Week. I think the guys working in education and working with children and getting feedback from kids about how it makes them feel that they can talk about this stuff, that they're scared on the bus or they're scared to get off of a bus when it's dark. Talking about to Renata at at Tinder, who's the CEO for EMEA Tinder, about how she wants to make online dating and meeting up with men safer. Like those things all give me hope that we're going to affect real women's every day. It's about the 97% of women who find this problematic. And that's a huge number. And we're all in it. And the, the win is too big. Us being safe is just would make everyone's lives so much better that the fight is worth the fight. Jamie, thank you so much for taking the time to speak to me today and for speaking so openly and so honestly. I'm very grateful. This is a really enjoyable conversation. I know I, know I got a bit emotional, but I, I think that actually, if, if I stop getting emotional, then, I, then I've probably burned out and I shouldn't still be uh, doing it. If you've been affected by a crime relating to any of the topics discussed in this podcast and you'd like to seek help, you can do so by visiting www.gov.uk, typing in the words report rape sexual assault into the search field. There you'll find a comprehensive list of resources, as well as advice on who you can talk to. Thank you for listening to Good On Purpose. If you've enjoyed this episode and would like to tune in for more, don't forget to hit subscribe before you leave. We'd love to hear your feedback and your suggestions for future episodes and guests. And you can do that either by getting in touch by email, hello at goodagency.co.uk, or you can find out more on our website, which is www.goodagency.co.uk. Thanks again for tuning in and hope you can join us next time.